I'm Dr. Jeff Donovan, and you're listening to the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast. A big welcome to part two of this two-part series. You're listening to a recording from the December 14th live webinar, the Top 20 Studies of 2022. In part one of the webinar, you heard the studies pertaining to androgenetic hair loss and alopecia areata. These are the final nine studies in that list of 20 wonderful studies from the year 2022. I'll begin by some very nice studies looking at Hair shedding, nice study by Dr. Mueller-Ramos looking at almost 6,000 patients with COVID-19 looking at hair shedding characteristics. That study taught us that women are more affected than men and taught us that many patients with COVID-19 experience trichodynia or scalp pain and burning and unusual sensations. Very nice study by Dr. Mueller and colleagues helped characterize this early shedding pattern in patients with COVID-19. Patients with COVID-19 can shed anywhere from two to four weeks after their their episode of COVID-19 infection or two to three months after infection. In this study, Mjol and colleagues looked at the characteristics of early shedders and helped highlight to the world that this pattern is a dystrophic antigen effluvium, not a telogen effluvium, but a dystrophic antigen effluvium. And Mazito and colleagues performed a very nice study characterizing the early shedding as being a hair loss pattern involving infection of the antigen hair follicle by the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And they used electron microscopy to help show that the SARS-CoV-2 virus actually infects the hair follicle. From there, we move on to some nice studies in scarring alopecia, a study by Dubin and colleagues in Frontal fibrosing alopecia, Dubin's study, helped characterize FFA as a scalp-predominant type of inflammatory scarring alopecia. Dubin showed that there are over a thousand genes that are differentially regulated in FFA compared to alopecia areata and controls. And their very nice study showed a variety of genes that are upregulated in FFA, including those related to inflammation and fibrosis. A really, really intriguing study which suggests that systemic inflammation is very low in FFA, high in alopecia areata, and in fact, it's the inflammation in the scalp itself which seems to be so relevant in FFA. We'll take a look at that very nice study. A very nice study by Jamerson and colleagues in the area of central centrifugal cicatricial alopecia. Jamerson and colleagues highlight 12 genes that are upregulated in CCCA And they show that patients with advanced CCCA have a very different gene profile than patients with early focal CCCA. We'll take a look at that really nice study. Then we'll take a look at two nice studies by Joshi and colleagues. One which looked at the prevalence of lichen planopilaris and one which looked at the comorbidities in lichen planopilaris. Joshi's study of prevalence is really intriguing because it suggests that LPP is way, way more common than we have realized. In 2021, Dr. Traeger and colleagues from New York suggested that LPP probably occurs in around 1 in 6,000 people. Joshi's study suggests that it could be 1 in 2,000 and maybe even higher in patients 60 and 70 years of age. 
So we'll take a look at this very important prevalence study. Then we'll take a look at Joshi's study looking at comorbidities in LPP. A very nice study which teaches us that patients with LPP may be at increased risk for psoriasis, atopic dermatitis, melanoma, basal cell cancer, squamous cell cancer, as well as inflammatory bowel disease, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, heart disease, insomnia, and a whole bunch of other comorbidities. Really nice study which reminds us that LPP may have all these important systemic associations that we really need to know about. And the final two studies, which top the list of, of 20 studies. First, a study from the Journal of the National Cancer Institute looking at the relationship between hair straighteners and uterine cancer. A really important study that shows that patients using hair straighteners may have a twofold increased risk of uterine cancer, and those that are using hair straighteners more often have an even greater risk of uterine cancer. And finally, a nice study from Taiwan suggesting that patients with seborrheic dermatitis may be at increased risk for osteoporosis. And so we'll take a look at that very, very nice data. I think this is unique. This type of association has really not been described before. And we'll take a look at this data, which suggests that patients with seborrheic dermatitis have this risk of osteoporosis. What does this mean to us? And what does this mean to the type of counseling we give to patients? Thanks for tuning in today. I hope you'll enjoy these final nine studies. So we move now to studies in hair shedding. Studies in hair shedding pertaining to COVID-19 are the three studies I'd like to highlight today. Wonderful studies of 2022. Dr. Mueller-Ramos and colleagues published a very nice study looking at the prevalence and associated factors in patients with COVID-19, looking at a very large study of almost 6,000 patients. So who exactly is getting hair loss? And what happens when you have COVID-19? What are the factors that are associated with hair loss? And so the author set out to evaluate the prevalence of hair loss and what other concerns are present within three months of a COVID infection. They performed an electronic survey using text messaging, SMS messaging, to collect data. So very nice study where patients receive messages on their phone. Have you had COVID-19? If you've had COVID-19, can you fill out this survey? And if you didn't, can you pass it on to someone else? And that's how they accumulated almost 6,000 patients. So of the 5,891 patients, these were patients that were recruited during the alpha wave of the pandemic. Participants had variable degrees of illness. About 90% were treated at home with slightly more mild illness. 6.7% were treated in hospital and 3.9% were treated in the ICU. Hair loss was the most common symptom of COVID-19 in those 5,800 patients. Memory loss occurred, loss of attention, weakness, anxiety, headaches, depression occurred, but hair loss was number one. About 50% of patients had hair loss after COVID-19. It was fairly equally divided between mild hair loss, moderate, and severe hair loss. What was interesting in the Mueller-Ramos study is that patients that were hospitalized were more likely to have severe hair loss. So in this study, there was a connection between severity of hair loss and severity of the COVID infection. Hair loss was associated with 
the disease length, how long COVID lasted, and whether you had fever, whether you had severe shortness of breath and muscle pains. In this study, 77% of patients had hair loss within the first 30 days, and 15% had hair loss 30 to 60 days out. Females were more affected than males, and females had a five-fold increased risk of developing hair loss after COVID compared to males. What was particularly interesting in this Mueller-Ramos study is the development of hair symptoms in patients with COVID infection. Hair symptoms like pain and burning and discomfort and abnormal sensations is something that is referred to as trichodynia. And about a quarter of patients in this study had trichodynia. 10 to 12% had trichodynia during the COVID infection and 11 to 13% had trichodynia after the infection resolved. Patients with late onset trichodynia were more likely to have severe disease and be hospitalized. I think this is really important. When COVID infections first started, a large number of patients would report hair loss, but a large number of patients would mention to me that they're experiencing scalp pain, burning, and there was uncertainty at that time. Is this burning and pain due to telogen effluvium? which sometimes gives these symptoms? Is it due to seborrheic dermatitis? Is it due to the development of some autoimmune issue in the scalp? And so this study highlighted just how common trichodynia is in patients with COVID-19, that upwards of a quarter of patients in the alpha wave were experiencing trichodynia. So a really important study which highlights that females are much more likely to be experiencing hair loss after COVID-19 than males, and it was fivefold greater risk in this particular study And this study really put hair loss on the list as symptoms occurring in patients with COVID infection. Miola and colleagues performed a very nice study as well, looking at early onset hair loss in patients with COVID-19. There are two patterns of hair loss after COVID-19 that I'd like to remind you about. Patients that have COVID-19 may or may not lose hair, but if they do lose hair, Some may lose it within the first two to four weeks. That's called the early onset pattern. And some patients may lose it between four to 12 weeks. That's what we call late onset. The authors of this study, Miola and colleagues, set out to evaluate the clinical presentation of hospitalized patients with COVID-19. And they identified 203 patients. 11 of those had hair loss occurring within 30 days. That was 5.4%. And so they wanted to further understand what's going on in patients with early onset hair loss. So they performed trichoscopy, trichograms, and biopsies to better characterize what's going on with early hair loss. What's different about early hair loss compared to typical hair loss at month two or three? So trichoscopy was pretty bland. It didn't really show much. There's no broken hairs, no anisotrichosis or variation in caliber, no yellow dots. There was just some empty follicles. Trichogram or forceful plucking of hairs and examining those hairs showed that 10% of hairs were dystrophic antigen hairs or abnormally shaped antigen hairs. Biopsies showed mostly terminal antigen follicles. There was a slight increase in telogen follicles, but not more than 25%. Not what we would be expecting in a typical massive telogen effluvium. And there was no significant inflammation. 
And so the conclusion here is that early onset shedding is a dystrophic antigen effluvium. That patients who say, I had COVID two weeks ago and I'm shedding now, that that patient probably has an antigen effluvium rather than a telogen effluvium. And so there are these two distinct mechanisms of hair loss in patients with COVID-19. So a really important study which changed how we think about hair shedding in patients affected by COVID-19. Mazito and colleagues published a very nice study building upon this data further. They performed electron microscopy studies looking at what's happening to hairs in patients with early onset shedding. And they described a 25-year-old woman that was admitted to hospital with cough, fever, shortness of breath, and she had a PCR-positive test for COVID-19. She was ill. She required oxygen. She was given corticosteroids, antipyretic drugs. She had a positive pull test for antigen hairs, suggesting again that she has this dystrophic antigen effluvium mechanism. She had a biopsy. It showed what biopsies of dystrophic antigen effluvium show in the setting of of COVID-19, and that was mostly antigen hairs and no inflammation. But hairs were submitted for electron microscopy, and the electron microscopy data showed cytoplasmic vesicles with several viral structures in the antigen hair follicle. And this is evidence that the SARS-CoV-2 viral particles are infecting hair follicles. And so the mechanism of dystrophic antigen effluvium may involve the SARS-CoV-2 virus infecting hair follicles. And the authors propose that this early onset mechanism may be characterized by SARS-CoV-2 replication in the outer root sheath, a high rate of dystrophic antigen hairs on a trichogram, more than 10%, biopsies which show mostly antigen hairs with no inflammation, and trichoscopy which is largely uninformative. So how does the SARS-CoV-2 virus get into the hair follicle in the first place? Well, the authors remind us in this study that keratinocytes in the outer root sheath express ACE2 and TMPRSS2, just like lung tissue, just like other tissues, and the SARS-CoV-2 virus might get into the skin by binding ACE2 on keratinocytes and then can replicate in hair follicles and skin cells. I think this is a really important study. We have come to learn over the last three years that the SARS-CoV-2 virus can not only infect lung tissue, but can infect here hair follicles, kidney tissue, brain tissue, heart tissue, and an array of different tissues in the body. And we know that the SARS-CoV-2 can actually reverse transcribe parts of its genetic structure into human genetic material as well. And so it is possible that some of this material persists in the skin and the hair for long periods of time. We're just coming to learn what happens when a person gets infected in terms of hair shedding, development of telogen effluvium, antigen effluvium, alopecia areata. If there truly are viral particles or pieces of viral genetic material left behind in the skin or hair, what are the implications for the skin and hair over 5, 10, 15, 20, 40 years? We don't know. More research is clearly needed. But this is a very important study which highlights that the SARS-CoV-2 virus is finding its way into hair follicles, finding its way into the skin. And this will undoubtedly fuel further studies in this important area. 
So we move now from hair shedding to four very nice studies in the area of scarring alopecia. And then we move to our final two studies. So scarring alopecia are these group of hair conditions whereby the body is forming scar tissue. And that scar tissue destroys hair follicle stem cells and that scar tissue leads to permanent hair loss. We'll be talking about lichen plano pilaris and frontal fibrosing alopecia and central centrifugal cicatricial alopecia today. These are three types of scarring alopecias which are commonly seen by hair loss specialists. We'll begin by frontal fibrosing alopecia. Frontal fibrosing alopecia is a scarring alopecia that affects females and males, affects females slightly more than males. But there is an increase in both groups. We're seeing more males come into clinic with FFA. We're seeing more females come into clinic with FFA. The condition was first described in 1994. And since that time, there's been a dramatic increase in reports of FFA. And it's thought to be that it's increasing and the exact cause is unknown. FFA is a condition which causes hair loss along the frontal scalp, around the back. So it's not truly frontal. It causes eyebrow and eyelash loss, body hair loss. It causes facial papules or bumps. It causes an increased risk for rosacea, changes in hormonal levels, including low androgen levels in some women, may increase the risk for early menopause, may increase the risk for other autoimmune conditions like psoriasis, lichen sclerosis, etc. So a condition which is receiving a lot of attention in the research community to understand the factors associated with FFA, what causes it in the first place, and how to treat it better. But a very, very important study was published in the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology in March by Dubin and colleagues from New York titled Scalp and Serum Profiling of Frontal Fibrosing Alopecia Reveals Scalp, Immune, and Fibrosis Dysregulation with No Systemic Involvement. So let's take a look at this very nice study, a study which suggests that FFA is a skin-predominant inflammatory condition with very limited inflammation in the bloodstream. And it differs in that regard from alopecia areata and psoriasis and atopic dermatitis. So let's look at Dubin's very nice study. So the authors assessed 33,000 genes in the scalp using RNA sequencing and 350 proteins in the serum using high-throughput proteomics. There was 38 patients in their study, 12 with FFA, 18 with alopecia areata, 8 controls, and biopsies were taken from all patients. These were 4.5 millimeter little punches. And so the authors found there was 1,218 genes which were differentially expressed in the scalp of FFA compared to alopecia areata. And so very different genetic expression in these two conditions. The most significantly altered markers in FFA included those related to inflammation, Th1 signaling, T-cell activation, fibrosis, T-regulatory cells, and the JAK-STAT pathway, or the Janus kinase pathway. What was so interesting is that activation of the JAK-STAT pathway, or the Janus kinase pathway, seemed to correlate well with fibrosis. In other words, if there was a little bit of JAK-STAT pathway activation, there was a little bit of fibrosis activation, or the pathways leading to scarring. If there was a lot of JAK-STAT activation, there was a lot of activation of pathways associated with fibrosis, suggesting that this JAK pathway is very related to the development of fibrosis. 
which is important to researchers because we have JAK inhibitors available to treat the condition. But what was so interesting is there was more robust inflammation in the scalp in FFA compared to alopecia areata. There was just one upregulated protein in the serum of FFA that differed from controls, and that was this ADM or apoptosis-related gene, ADM. And ADM has uh, many functions, including uh, vasodilation, regulation of hormone secretion, angiogenesis, and antimicrobial activity. So it has a, a number of roles which are poorly understood, but just one protein was different in the serum compared to controls. And that differed from alopecia areata, where there was significant inflammation in the serum. 73 proteins in alopecia areata, 45 in atopic dermatitis, 47 in psoriasis. So evidence here of significant inflammation in the body in alopecia areata, atopic dermatitis, psoriasis, these autoimmune diseases, but not in FFA. So in FFA, there was more scalp inflammation, very little systemic serum inflammation. In alopecia areata, there was a lot of inflammation in the serum, very little scalp inflammation, comparatively. So the authors propose that FFA is a condition for which robust inflammation is limited to the scalp. And it may be a very different inflammatory condition compared to alopecia areata, atopic dermatitis, and psoriasis. And they show that fibrosis is very much a part of the pathogenesis of FFA. And it seems that the JAK-STAT pathway is, is driving fibrosis, or at least seems to be. And so there's many unknowns here. The, the con conclusion here, and the, the authors put it in their title, is that FFA seems to be a scalp-predominant inflammatory disease. So a lot of what's going on in the disease is limited to the scalp. And there's a lot of questions that, un that are unanswered and remain. And, and most good studies really open the door to a lot of questions. And that's what good studies do. And so one question is, are, are patients with FFA truly at increased risk for some of these systemic diseases? If FFA is a scalp-predominant disease, and we should be focusing on scalp, 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 then what does all this other informa information mean? We know that patients with FFA are, we know that patients with lichen planopilaris are at increased risk for heart disease. We know that from the conic study. If FFA is thought to be a close cousin of LPP, then are patients with FFA at increased risk for heart disease? Is FFA a condition whereby heart disease isn't at increased risk? Maybe it's completely different from classic lichen planopilaris. We don't know. Do we accept this concept that FFA is a scalp only disease? We know that eyebrows, eyelashes can be affected, body hair can be affected. What's happening there? Is it the same pathways? Is it the same upregulation of JAK-STAT signaling, TH1 signaling, differences in other pathways that are identical to what's going on in the scalp, or is it different? And so what's happening in those specific situations? And are the systemic associations that we see in FFA relevant? What do we make of the early menopause that's thought to occur in FFA. Sergio Vano's study in 2014 suggested that 14% of women with FFA have early menopause compared to 1% in the general population. It's thought that there's an increased risk of lichen sclerosis, genital lichen sclerosis, psoriasis, low androgens. What do we make of these associations? 
There's a twofold increased risk of rosacea in women with FFA. How do we tie that in to this study, which suggests that FFA is a scalp-predominant disease? We know that medications like tamoxifen, tamoxifen can trigger FFA. 15-fold increased risk of FFA in tamoxifen users. Other drugs like ustekinumab for psoriasis can trigger FFA, rarely. But if systemic drugs can trigger FFA, then how do we tie in that conclusion that FFA isn't a systemic disease? So a really fascinating study, which opens the door to a lot of great, great questions. And we talked about the increased risk of early menopause. And there's a lot of autoimmune diseases in FFA, psoriasis, thyroid disease, lichen sclerosis, lichen planopilaris, of course, discoid lupus. So lots of autoimmune diseases are increased in FFA. How do we tie this into an understanding that FFA in the serum and 350 proteins analyzed has very little of those suggestions of inflammation? More studies are needed. Fascinating condition. We desperately need additional treatments and additional understanding of what causes this disease. And it very well may be that there is not one form of FFA, that there's many forms of FFA and we're grouping them together at the present time and they have the same clinical presentation, but they may have differences that we need to sort out and that could explain some of this. But we have a long way to go to understand FFA. We move now to CCCA, central centrifugal cicatricial alopecia, a scarring alopecia in black women, which is not uncommon. Up to 18% of black women have CCCA. It's underdiagnosed, underreported. It's dramatically more common than we realize. A very nice study by Jamerson and colleagues changes our views on CCCA. A really important study to know about, and I'd like to explain it to you, because it changes the counseling that goes on in the clinic, and it changes the way we think about CCCA. The title, Gene Expression Profiling, suggests severe, extensive CCCA may be both clinically and biologically distinct from limited disease subtypes. So when a patient comes in with early CCCA, just a little bit of hair loss centrally in the middle of the scalp, we often think, I'm glad you came in early. We're catching this early. There's lots that we can do. Steroid injections, topical steroids, topical calcineurin inhibitors, doxycycline, saracycline. And when a patient comes in late, our feeling is we have limited ability to get hair back. It would have been great if you had have come in earlier. Of course, we may not say that to patients. Sometimes they may even say it to us. Do you think if I came earlier, Doc, it would have been better? And sometimes we feel maybe it would have. The study by Jamerson changes that. It changes that kind of thinking. And I'd like to review that with you. So Jamerson analyzed 16 patients, performing punch biopsies in those patients. And they performed RNA isolation and microarray analysis. And they showed that there were 12 genes that were upregulated in CCCA. They compared the genes in extensive CCCA, so patients with more advanced hair loss, compared to focal limited CCCA. And they showed that several genes were upregulated in advanced CCCA compared to early focal CCCA. And patients with more advanced disease were more likely to have expression of MMP9 or matrix metalloproteinase 9. SRFP4, or secreted frizzle-related protein, macrophage scavenger receptor 1, MSR1, lysozyme, 
an NCK-associated protein-like one. And the authors propose here that extensive CCCA may be clinically and biologically distinct from mild CCCA. So it's not simply that extensive CCCA is on a spectrum of mild CCA, that you start out with mild CCCA. If it's not treated, it goes on to moderate CCCA. And if it's not treated, it goes on to severe CCCA. Yes, that might occur probably does occur. But the information here suggests that extensive CCCA is a unique entity to itself, that possibly there are genes that are driving the development of a more aggressive form of CCCA. Whereas we used to say in early CCCA, we're catching it early, this is good. In advanced CCCA, we think patient should have come earlier. We're changing that type of thinking now. In early CCCA, the suggestion is that you may have a mild form of CCCA because you have a distinct gene expression profile that keeps it mild. And in advanced CCCA, maybe some of the patients have a form that should have been treated earlier and it has progressed. But a significant number of patients probably have a distinct gene expression profile, which is driving the development of a more aggressive form of CCCA. And so it's not necessarily that you should have come earlier. It is that you may have a distinct gene profile, which is creating an aggressive form. And perhaps in the future, if we understand the genes better, we can predict what type of CCCA a patient will have and will be better able to tailor therapies. Since the publication of this study, many patients have asked me, can you test my genes? Can you test me for lysozyme? Can you test me for MSR1s, secreted frizzle-related protein 4? Well, the answer is not yet. But that day is coming where we understand more about a person's genetic profile and towards more personalized type medicine where we understand what to do with this information. But we don't yet have that ability yet, nor do we confidently know how to structure that information. But it certainly could be that if a patient comes into clinic and we identify that they have a certain gene profile that predicts an aggressive disease, then we might say to them, I think you should start topical calcineurin inhibitors, topical steroids, steroid injections, a systemic therapy like doxycycline or serocycline. I think that's the route we need to go right away because your genetic profile is predicting a more extensive disease. And so those days are coming when we come to understand how to use genetic information more but the Jamerson study is so important because it changes our thinking about CCCA. So we move now to lichen planopilaris. Lichen planopilaris is a scarring alopecia that affects both women and men. Women probably slightly more than men. It affects patients in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. Patients often have hair loss in the central scalp, but it could be all over. They have itching and burning and pain, but not all do. But itching, burning, and pain are common as is increased shedding. So Joshi and colleagues set out to determine the prevalence of lichen planopilaris using a research database called the All of Us database, a relatively new research database. And so how common is LPP, lichen planopilaris? Well, that's indeed the question of Joshi and colleagues. So authors from Baylor set out to determine the prevalence using this study database called the All of Us database. They use the ICD code L66.1, 
as well as the SNOMED code 64540004 to identify LPP patients in that database. And this includes patients with lichen plano pilaris and FFA who have the same code. And so the All of Us database, as of March 2022, when these authors performed the study, had about 327,000 participants. There was 142 patients in that database with LPP, representing a prevalence of about 1 in 2,325. And so the authors estimate that the prevalence of LPP is about 1 in 2,000. The average age at diagnosis in this study was 62 years. Females comprised most of the patients with LPP. But what was so interesting in this study, in addition to the calculation of prevalence, was the prevalence according to age group. And they proposed that in those 65 to 74, the prevalence may be as high as 1 in 1,000. In those 55 to 64, it may be 1 in 1,800, 1 in 1,800. It may be higher in white individuals, 1 in 1,750. In black individuals, 1 in 3,500. Hispanic, 1 in 5,000. And in Asian, 1 in 11,000. So it's a really nice study. We don't have a lot of good data about the prevalence of lichen plano pilaris. These studies are hard to do. They make a lot of assumptions. They often have a low number of patients. And there are limitations with all these prevalence studies. One of the limitations of this study is it doesn't separate lichen plano pilaris from FFA. FFA is thought to be a type of lichen plano pilaris, so it has the same coding at the present time. But it gives us some idea about the prevalence of lichen plano pilaris. And I really like this study. Trager and colleagues in 2021 published a study. This is a group from New York. They published a very nice study suggesting that about 1 in 6,000 patients in their database from New York have lichen plano pilaris. And when I read that study in 2021, my immediate feeling was, I think LPP is more common than that. We don't yet have the tools and resources to really confidently identify the, the true prevalence, but I think there's more than 1 in 6,000 people out there walking around have lichen plano pilaris. And so when Joshi and colleagues published their study this year, my feeling was, this is really interesting. I think we're getting closer to the true number. Who knows what the number truly is? It might be different in the United States than in parts of Europe. It might be different in parts of Europe than in parts of Asia. It might be different in parts of Asia than in Australia. That is quite likely that it differs. But nevertheless, lichen plano pilaris in North America, at least, is probably more common than 1 in 6,000. And so having this Joshi data suggesting maybe 1 in 2,000, maybe as high as 1 in 1,000 in those 65 to 74, I think is really helpful and will fuel additional studies to really identify the prevalence. Joshi and colleagues used the same database to perform a study looking at comorbidities associated with lichen plano pilaris. And this study really builds upon some very nice data by Connick and colleagues. Connick and colleagues published a very nice study in the Journal of the European Academy of Dermatology and Venereology in 2021 looking at some of these associations with LPP. Let me remind you about Connick's study and then we'll dive into Joshi's study. So Connick and colleagues performed a study comparing 3,170 patients with lichen plano pilaris to 63 million controls. They found in patients with lichen plano pilaris, 
There's an increased risk of hyperlipidemia, high blood pressure, obesity, diabetes, a tenfold increased risk of metabolic syndrome in LPP compared to controls, an increased risk of coronary artery disease, atrial fibrillation, heart attacks. And so Joshi performed a study this year trying to further identify some of these associations. What type of association should we be aware of in LPP? So they again use this All of Us database, this new database, to identify patients with LPP in that database. And that includes LPP and FFA. But what they found is that in patients with LPP coding, there was an increased risk of psoriasis, atopic dermatitis, melanoma, basal cell cancer, rosacea, squamous cell carcinoma, inflammatory bowel disease, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, ischemic heart disease, insomnia, hyperlipidemia, hypothyroidism, high blood pressure, anxiety, and depression. These were all statistically significant compared to controls. So I think this is really important information. It really draws attention to these associations and builds upon the CONIC study of 2021 in the JEADV. Again, I think these associations are so important. We are a field of hair loss medicine, and that can't be forgotten, that that we are not only focused on studying hair follicles and how they grow and don't grow, but these associations are so important to our field and understanding the relevance of this information. Patients with androgenetic hair loss are at increased risk for metabolic syndrome. Patients with alopecia areata are at increased risk for metabolic syndrome. Here, patients with lichen plano pilaris at increased risk for metabolic syndrome of tenfold, as well as psoriasis, atopic dermatitis, autoimmune disease, depression, anxiety, insomnia. This is really important information. I think this will definitely fuel additional studies as we come to understand these important associations. The reason these are so important is clearly when we see someone with scarring alopecia, we have to be thinking about these associations. When you see someone with lichen plano pilaris, should we be asking about, have you had a skin check for squamous cell, basal cell melanoma? Is there a history of melanoma in your family? Do you have high blood pressure, hypertension? Do you have diabetes? Do you have high blood sugars? Do you have joint pain? How's your sleep? We should be asking about all these associations. Right now, it seems a little bit far-fetched to go into a detailed history of melanoma family history and personal history of skin cancers in a patient with lichen plano pilaris who wants you to stop their scalp itching. But this study reminds us it's relevant. And how do the treatments that we administer affect these associations? If we administer a certain immunosuppressant, to a patient with lichen plano pilaris, are we altering their risk for melanoma, squamous cell, basal cell? If there's an increased risk for coronary artery disease and heart disease in lichen plano pilaris, do the treatments that we administer alter that risk in any way? Do they increase the risk? Do they provide preventive and protective effects on heart disease? That's why it's so important. We are not working on hair follicles in isolation. We are working on helping hair growth and stopping hair loss in association with all these other parts of the body. And we need to understand them well. And I think this Joshi study is really important and ties in with the conic study and really reminds us that we are an evolving field of hair loss medicine. 
Our final two studies, we move now to Chang and colleagues, a study published in the Journal of the National Cancer Institute, 2022, looking at the risk of uterine cancer in patients using hair straightening products. So a new study concludes that hair straighteners increase the risk slightly of uterine cancer, and women who use hair straightening products more often, chemical straighteners, have an increased risk of uterine cancer even greater than those who use them less frequently. So it's been previously suggested that use of certain products can be associated with an increased risk of cancer. And it's thought that cancer might come about because of the chemicals that we use in our day-to-day and their ability to act as what's called endocrine disruptors. And previous studies have suggested that some hair products may increase the risk of ovarian cancer, breast cancer, and that includes hair straighteners. And these authors had performed those studies in the past, suggesting that hair straightening chemicals may increase the risk of those cancers. And here, they show that it increases the risk of uterine cancer. So the authors examined the association between hair straightening products as well as other products and the risk of uterine cancer in 33,000 participants aged 35 to 74. Patients completed a questionnaire. They provided a whole bunch of data on products they use, including hair dyes, hair straighteners, relaxers, pressing products, permanent waves. 378 uterine cancers were identified in this study, which followed patients for an average of 11 years of follow-up. But patients who used hair straightening products in the last 12 months had a 1.8-fold increased risk of uterine cancer. And patients that used hair straightening products even more frequently, four or greater than four uses of hair straightening products, chemical straightening products in the last 12 months, had a 2.5-fold increased risk of uterine cancer. The use of other products like dyes, permanence, body waves, was not associated with uterine cancer in this study. And so these studies provide some of the first epidemiologic evidence suggesting that hair straightening products are associated with an increased risk of uterine cancer. This is a well-conducted study, large study, using a racially and ethnically diverse population. And it's known that exposure to excess estrogen and this imbalance between estrogen and progesterone is a risk factor for uterine cancer. For example, it's well known that when estrogen is given to women who have a uterus and haven't had a hysterectomy, that progesterone must be given at the same time because if estrogen is just given alone, it increases the risk for uterine cancer and endometrial cancer. It is proposed that some of these chemicals that are used may act as endocrine disruptors and trigger estrogen-type signaling, and that may be one of the mechanisms by which some of these cancers develop. Some of these hair products and here hair-straightening chemicals are thought to be associated with development of cancer, and breast and ovarian cancer had prior studies suggesting an association, and here we have evidence of an increased risk of uterine cancer. We don't know the ingredients that are responsible for the development of uterine cancer or breast or ovarian cancer. That study was not collected in this particular study. It is a source of ongoing research. But this was a survey-based study trying to assess 
how often patients use these chemicals and what they use and their ultimate development of cancer. But I think this is really important data, and I think that many of the products we use in our day-to-day are affecting our risk for certain negative health impacts. And this data is really important because it's up to us to understand this information to advise patients that are at increased risk. But of course, this data is so important to our regulatory bodies to make sense of what to do with this information and what warnings to place on labels, what products to limit in the market, what products to ban in the market. And these are tough questions, but I think this is very solid epidemiologic information, which ties in a relationship between chemical hair straightening products and the development of several hormonal dependent cancers. Further studies and and further information is needed to really understand the groups that are at the highest risk and what to do with this information to help limit the development of cancer in individuals using these products. So we move now to our final study, study 20, a study looking at the risk of osteoporosis in patients with seborrheic dermatitis, a very unique study published in the Japanese literature, the Journal of Dermatology. It's a study from Taiwan titled Impact of Seborrheic Dermatitis on Osteoporosis Risk, a population-based cohort study. So osteoporosis is a systemic bone-resorbing disease that causes bone fragility, increases the risk for fractures, and the risk of osteoporosis increases with age. And overall, about 23% of females will experience osteoporosis, and that's 11% of males. And osteoporosis is a very important medical condition in our population. The risk factors for osteoporosis are divided into two categories, the modifiable risk factors and the non-modifiable risk factors. The modifiable risk factors are those that we can change. Low body weight is a risk factor. Smoking, alcohol, lack of exercise, lack of dietary calcium, long-term use of prednisone, these are modifiable factors. The non-modifiable factors are the things we can't do much about. Age, gender, race, genetics. Those are the non-modifiable risk factors for osteoporosis. Now, what is seborrheic dermatitis? And then we'll get into this very nice study suggesting that seborrheic dermatitis may be associated with an increased risk for osteoporosis. Well, seborrheic dermatitis is an inflammatory skin condition. It can affect the scalp and is very much thought to be a close cousin of dandruff. It can affect the area around the nose. It can affect the chest. It can affect any oil-rich area of the skin. About 5% of the world has seborrheic dermatitis. It's thought that malassezia yeast play a very important role in the development of seborrheic dermatitis, but there are other very important factors as well including changes in the microbiome, certain environmental factors, but there's many risk factors. But seborrheic dermatitis occurs on the seborrheic areas of the body, the anterior chest, the axilla, the groin, the back, the central area of the face, the area around the nose, the scalp. These are all oil-rich areas. And the incidence of seborrheic dermatitis is highest in infants and adolescents, and then again in those 30 to 60 years of age. There are risk factors like neurologic disease, stress, being male, 
HIV, weather, cold weather, depression, poor sleep, humidity, Western diets, alcohol, race, high altitude, medications, lymphoproliferative disease, immunosuppression. These all increase the risk for seborrheic dermatitis. The one thing which has not been clear is whether patients with seborrheic dermatitis have an increased risk for osteoporosis. And the authors became interested in these associations because of the fact that seborrheic dermatitis is an inflammatory condition. And they wondered whether the inflammatory signaling and the inflammatory type pathways could be associated with the same pathways that increase the risk of osteoporosis. So they used the Taiwan National Health Insurance Research Database, this large database, to look at individuals diagnosed with seborrheic dermatitis and individuals diagnosed with osteoporosis to ask the question, do patients diagnosed with seborrheic dermatitis have an increased risk of being diagnosed with osteoporosis? And so they compared the risk of osteoporosis in patients with seborrheic dermatitis compared to the risk of osteoporosis in patients without seborrheic dermatitis. So the study group included 7,831 patients aged 18 to 50 with seborrheic dermatitis, and the control group included 31,324 patients without seborrheic dermatitis, and patients were matched by age, gender, and comorbidities. And overall, about 1% of patients with seborrheic dermatitis had osteoporosis, compared to about 0.66% in the non-seborrheic dermatitis group. But when patients were adjusted and matched for various variables known to influence the risk, compared to patients without seborrheic dermatitis, patients with seborrheic dermatitis had a six-fold increased risk of osteoporosis. The impact of seborrheic dermatitis on the risk of osteoporosis was highest in female patients, and what was particularly interesting is it was highest in younger age groups as well. Not a lot of young patients, 18 to 29, have osteoporosis. But in this study, if you had seborrheic dermatitis, the risk of osteoporosis in that young age group was increased about sevenfold. Similarly, in the 30 to 39-year-old group, not a lot of patients have osteoporosis. But if you had seborrheic dermatitis your risk of osteoporosis was increased almost tenfold. And in the 40 to 49 group, it was 7.31-fold. And so osteoporosis risk increased with age, but there was significantly increased risk that was going on in younger patients with seborrheic dermatitis. where We don't tend to see osteoporosis all that often, but if you had seborrheic dermatitis, you had this increased risk of osteoporosis. Patients with seborrheic dermatitis tended to develop osteoporosis more rapidly, 2.2 years after enrollment in the seborrheic dermatitis group compared to nine years in the control group. So this was one of the first studies to demonstrate that seborrheic dermatitis is associated with osteoporosis. And if you had seborrheic dermatitis and hyperlipidemia, hyperthyroidism, or epilepsy, you were at particularly increased risk of osteoporosis. And it was particularly interesting that this risk of osteoporosis is affecting some of the younger patients as well, affecting individuals in their 20s and 30s, age groups where one doesn't typically think about osteoporosis risk. So a really nice study highlighting this association, and we'll certainly 
fuel additional studies. Does this apply to scalp seborrheic dermatitis? In this particular Taiwanese research database, patients with seborrheic dermatitis of the skin, of the nose, of the back, of the chest, of the scalp were coded in the same way. Does this information apply to seborrheic dermatitis of the scalp? We don't know. Does mild seborrheic dermatitis have the same risk as severe seborrheic dermatitis? We don't know. We code things the same in these databases. So if someone comes into clinic with severe seborrheic dermatitis and we learn by history that their mother or sister have osteoporosis, does the fact that the patient has severe seborrheic dermatitis change our thinking in any way compared to if they came into clinic with mild seborrheic dermatitis? We don't know. What do we do with this information? If a patient comes into clinic with seborrheic dermatitis and they're 45 or 50, should we be asking about fractures, osteoporosis, family history? Should we be moving up the age at which bone mineral density testing is done? We don't know. These are all important questions for the future. And good studies fuel good questions like this, and we really need more research. And of course, can we modify the risk? Can we change a person's risk of developing osteoporosis by using this information in some way? Are there certain features of seborrheic dermatitis that will allow us to have someone undergo a bone mineral density test at an earlier age than they otherwise would? And can we get that patient started on certain treatments or certain lifestyle protocols which can alter their risk for developing osteoporosis in the future? We don't know. These are important questions. But I really like this study highlighting this association that we really hadn't appreciated in this same manner before. I'd like to thank you so much for joining me this evening. These are the top 20 studies of 2022. These are studies that have changed the type of thinking that goes on in the clinic. These are the studies that change the type of counseling we give to patients, the way we prescribe medications, the way we diagnose hair loss conditions. I think these studies have really helped me a great deal and I hope you found them interesting and I hope these studies will be helpful to you in your practice if you're a practitioner joining me this evening. If you're a patient or a family member, I hope you've enjoyed these studies and I hope you found them helpful. I really appreciate all of the wonderful comments and feedback that we've received and I look forward to reviewing again with you some important studies which change the landscape of the hair loss medicine community. Thanks again.